Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Okay, Mr. Houlihan, before we get to our guest today, I want to remind listeners of a very cool way to integrate behavioral science into your daily life without having to read hundreds of books and academic papers, or even listen to hundreds of episodes, maybe 300 plus episodes of Behavioral Grooves. It's a daily yeah. journal. It's a, that's all you need. You just need a daily journal and one that my colleagues Ben and Alex and I developed, and it's called BrainShift. It's a 13-week super helpful guided journal that helps you keep focused on the things in your life that will help you find and keep your groove. You know, I just Personally, I want to emphasize how great this product is. I keep my brain shift journal at work since I like to get to my desk early every day. And I find that in less than three minutes, I've got a very focused view of how I want to go about that day. Kurt, when I first saw the prototype of brain shift, I knew immediately that I wanted this in my life because <laughs> it's so good. And I hope that, you know, people will give it a try and experience the benefits of brain shift right away because it's really that simple. So, okay, I guess we should get back to our guests. Today. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for that, um, Tim. I appreciate that. And, and I hope that uh, listeners might try it out as well. But yes, let's get back to our guest today. So as our longtime listeners will recognize, we don't always have world-class researchers or Nobel laureates or New York <laughs> Times bestselling authors on the show. Yet Not sometimes, the <laughs> sometimes instead, we focus on people who actually do real work. You know, the, <laughs> those individuals <laughs> who take that great information from those researchers and authors and they apply it in ways that impact people's lives. We find that these people shed light on things that you don't get anywhere else. They get into how things work in the real world. Right. And it takes yeah. a special kind of genius to do this well. And our guest today, my opinion, is one of those people. Absolutely. James Costello is the Vice President of Field Operations and Incentive Compensation Practices at TGAS Advisors. Now, TGAS Advisors is one of the leading consultancies focused on the pharmaceutical industry. They provide insights and real-world knowledge to hundreds of leading health sciences and life sciences companies around the world. Now, I have been lucky enough to know Jim for almost a decade. And Jim has taught me a lot on ways to design and improve incentive plans. And we thought it would be good to get him on the show because while everyone listening might not design incentives for their companies, we are all interested in understanding motivation and how to improve that. that motivation, man, motivating your team, motivating your kids, motivating yourself, right? These insights from the show and we'll get to some more detail on uh, these in the grooving session, they can all help you in all of these areas of your life. A couple of things before we get to the episode itself. We use some terms in this, in our conversation with Jim, that are industry terms that may not be common knowledge to everyone. So we wanted to kind of overview some of those definitions. So Tim. Yeah, yeah. the first one is target. Now, we all know what a target is. And when we think of those round circle and the circle thing, shooting the arrow dealies, you know, okay. <laughs> shooting that Whatever. arrow thingy. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but Jim talks about targets in a very specific way. When he talks about targets, he's talking about the amount of incentive that someone earns if they achieve 100% of their goal. Which, 
leads me to another term, attainment to goal or attainment of goal. And in goal-based incentive plans, which a lot of incentive plans are, salespeople will often get paid out based on their attainment to the goal that they have. Right. So right. if they if if that attainment is under a hundred percent, i.e. less than a hundred percent of the goal. So if they're supposed to sell a hundred units and they only sold eighty-five, that's eighty-five percent. That's their attainment to goal then their payout is less. It's often ratcheted down a lot. There might be a floor and different pieces. And if it's over 100% attainment, they earn more. And it might be, you know, not just uh, linear, it might be exponential. Another term is MBO, management by objectives. Now, these are parts of incentive and bonus plans where people have specific objectives that they need to meet in order to earn the incentive. Now, these are more often than not subjective and rather than objective. So they are subjective measures usually doled out by their managers to actually determine whether or not someone did it or not because there isn't some objective measure uh, that goes along with it. Yeah, so often the MBO, you're rated by a manager uh, on a one to five scale or a yes, did achieved it or not achieved it. So that's that's rather than. Right, rather than relying on data from the system. The percent attainment to goal, as we talked about earlier. And lastly, the the only, the last kind of definition we want to talk about is, is we, we talk about scripts. And in pharmaceutical sales, scripts are short for prescriptions. And oftentimes, uh, those are used as the measure uh, for salespeople have in their goals. In other words, you need to sell X number of scripts this quarter uh, in order to, to achieve your target. Excellent. Thanks, Kurt. Okay, listeners, I think that wraps up our terminology tutorial, so it's time for the quiz. Wait, wait, wait. No, we are not <laughs> having a quiz on this. Okay. All right. All right, you're right, Kurt. But there is the request that you grab the best incentive brew that you can find and sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jim Costello. Jim Costello, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. It's good to have you here, and we want to find out whether you prefer coffee or tea. Tea. Ooh. Love it. Love it. You, you Zero are coffee at along all? Uh, with, with Mr. Houlihan there. There you yeah. go. Are you 100% tea? I am not 100% tea, but given the choice, a uh, uh, definitely a, uh, a tea preference. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. Okay, so would you rather have dinner with your favorite actor or actress or your favorite musician? Huh, that's a good one. Probably my favorite musician. Mm-hmm. And I Another bet Tim is going to ask a question to follow up on that. Huh? <laughs> I might I might be curious to know, does anybody come to mind? Oh, I think it would be interesting to have dinner with Bruce Springsteen or Bono. Yeah. Actually, yeah. both of those would be that. Have both of them at dinner, wouldn't that oh, be? Wow. That would be a, a really interesting conversation. So, if the egos could actually be in one place, you know, at the same time. <laughs> My concern about some of the actors is they, uh, you know, if you've ever seen like Robert De Niro be interviewed, he's an empty vessel. Otherwise, he can't. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, you have to, and you know, you kind of take on the persona of who you are, exactly, and. Yeah, I, at least like Bruce and Bono, they you know they write these lyrics. They have that they're they're trying to figure out the world. They're trying to do exactly. all sorts of different things. They have a point of view. So, yeah, absolutely. Yep. 
Okay, uh, a third speed round question. Which is more exciting, attending the 100th episode of Behavior Groups in person in Philadelphia or being a guest on the Behavior Groups podcast? Oh, I think being a guest is uh, more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love oh, it. Well, for those, for those listeners, Jim was one of the uh, – uh, the select few that we had at the 100th uh, episode back in Philadelphia a number of years ago now, man. That was... What do you mean, Kurt? It was a wall-to-wall crowd. <laughs> well, in a very small room. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know what memory you're thinking of, Tim, but that wasn't the memory that I remember. So, All right. Last speed round question, Jim. Is collaboration the most toothless MBO ever? <laughs> yes, it absolutely <laughs> is. Which, which uh, yeah, you you made that statement uh, pretty publicly. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I have. You know, collaboration is a means to an end, right? Mm-hmm. I like to measure the end. <laughs> I don't want to measure the means to the end. That's a tactic. That that. What I try to coach my customers on is if you want to reward collaboration, build a, share, build a shared objective that can't be achieved without collaborating. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. And don't pay on the tactic, pay on the result, and then coach to the, coach to the tactic. Um, so yeah, I think collaboration is a toothless objective. Very often it's collaborate, schedule regular meetings with your counterparts. Um, it's a, it's, and, and Kurt, you've heard me use the Lake Wobegon effect. It's, <laughs> it's a Lake Wobegon style MBO. Um, the women are strong, the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. <laughs> collaboration, everybody's above average on collaboration. Well, you know, I'm from Minnesota, so I mean, we, we live well, the Lake Wobegon place here there absolutely you go. yeah but no i think you know it's much more meaningful to talk about why is collaboration important yeah and what does it what does collaboration achieve and then measure the achievement is really how i, I i'm always trying to get people to come back to what's the achievement what's the outcome you're looking for as a result of this and let's figure out a way to measure that thank you for that jim i Kurt and I have a rich history in incentives. Our listeners are pretty familiar with that. We love talking about incentives, and we know that you have a rich history in incentives as well. And we'd really like to uh, maybe spend some time talking about incentive and reward plans uh, with you uh, today. Maybe uh, could maybe to sort of set the stage, could you tell us a little bit about your role, though, at TGAS? Sure. So. TGAS Advisors, we are a a specialty consultancy. We uh, provide benchmarking and advice to a network of customers in the pharmaceutical space uh, and pharmaceutical and life sciences. So we exclusively focus on pharmaceuticals and life sciences and and effectively focus on the commercial operations side of the business. I lead our incentive compensation practice area. So I have about 100 member clients in my incentive comp network. Um, that that engage us on an annual basis to provide them benchmarking, provide advice on incentive plans, act as a sounding board when they have incentive comp issues, and also use us to tap into the broader network to get urgent questions uh, responded to. Personally, I've been involved with pharmaceutical sales incentives. I've been at TGAS 15 years, been doing pharma sales incentives for about 25 years. I always 
joke and say it appears this is what i do at this point uh i I, yeah i I didn't set out when i when i was a little boy i didn't you know i want to be a cowboy i want to be a fireman i want to be a pharma sales incentive comp expert um get in line get in line everybody but you know i do find i find the topic kind of endlessly fascinating people ask me frequently you know, do I believe in incentives This at this point? Uh, do incentives work? And so I, I give a bit of a consultant style answer when I ask if do incentives work. I said, well, do they work? Will you achieve your goals with a particular incentive plan? I don't know, right? There's a lot of other things that go into whether you achieve your goals. But one thing that I'm 100% positive of is that incentives drive behavior. So if you don't get the behaviors right, that's where incentives goes off the rail. And I think too often we we focus too much, and certainly in the pharma industry, focus too much on which measures, how we're setting the goal, all of this stuff that really isn't about what outcome are we looking for, and are we aligning the outcome that we're looking for to the behaviors that we're incentivizing. So I spend a lot of time talking to my customers about, you know, what's what's what behavior? How do, what does this map? back to. And that's those are the kinds of things that I'm passionate about. I, I also try to never forget that I'm dealing with, that incentives you're dealing with people. Um, we work with large field forces, large data sets. It's easy to analyze your way out of a problem. And it's not enough for it to be analytically strong of a, a result. You need to be able to communicate it. You need to be able to tell people why people need to act on, be able to act on it. If you can't do any of those, then the analysis doesn't really help. So... That's sort of my. That's sort of where I come from, and where I've sort of landed after uh, after having worked with a you know multitude of clients over time. Yeah. Well, Jim, you and I have worked at least known each other for many years now, as we kind of the uh, kind of traverse this world of incentive pharma incentives and various different things. And I know I've learned a lot from you. And I know you probably haven't learned anything from me, uh, but that uh, is is one of these pieces. But I I wanted to kind of talk a little bit because we've had huge element uh, with the pandemic and incentives kind of went through a pretty massive, maybe not massive, but um, it, you know there was a pretty significant kind of shift in at least in what I've seen. And so I kind of want to talk about like what happened, um, what did you see that happened during the pandemic? And then if we look at kind of in, although the pandemic isn't necessarily over, we've kind of moved on from it. And what have you seen uh, companies kind of respond in the more more recent? How, how has that changed? Sure. So without trying, without sounding too patriarchal about it, I, I was proud of the way the industry responded when the pandemic hit, right? When you think about all the way back to what was it, um, you know, March of 20... 2020. 2020? Yeah. March of 2020. We pretty quickly started advising our network, look, you've pulled all your people out. Take a breath here. Don't pay them on performance. You know, Give people some sense of stability because it was a very, it was an unstable, scary time. And most of our network did that. Most of our network paid, you know, paid at target. They very quickly put in protections for field reps because the role of the pharmaceutical sales rep changed so dramatically, right? They weren't out calling on doctors um, and they weren't out in hospitals. So very quickly, there were protections put in place and they took a very, the industry took a very, a very rational approach to incentives. Not surprisingly, these are numbers-driven people. They are looking for 
performance and looking to meet sales objectives, there was tremendous pressure to get back to normal. So while for about the first year, protections stayed in place, after the first year of the pandemic, most companies had reverted back largely to the plans that they had used pre-pandemic. And you can make an argument that they had been using those same plans throughout with the exception of providing protection. So they were measuring attainment to goal. They were measuring you know, new patient starts. They were continuing to measure all of those things. Um, but they were putting some protections and some floors in place. And then there was, after about a year, there was a real push to get to pull those protections out and can put the reps back on a strictly performance-based incentive plan. And I think the, the majority, the vast majority of our network at this point, you know, throughout 22, has been on a performance-based, without protection, um, field sales, you know, traditional field sales incentive plan. More or less a, a back-to-status quo kind of thing? Back-to-status quo, yep that you know there's been a recognition that there there's it's harder to call on certain customers there are certain areas certain therapeutic areas that are more or less affected but the expectation appears to be that reps call on doctors call on practitioners call on nurses um, and you know the job the job requirements seemingly haven't changed yeah I, I'm interested you mentioned this idea of aligning behaviors with the incentives like like uh, with the with the align the incentives with the behaviors that you want done. I think that that's a really important thing to say and to do, but it's also not very easy to do because it gets screwed up a lot. So could you yeah, spend just a minute at, on maybe some of your special magic elixir that you use to decide what how to how to get those incentives aligned with the behaviors that you want. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting challenge that I find, right? I use a tactic of encouraging my customers to, to use the most direct language possible for strategy, right? Let's boil this down to the most direct language. I'll give you an example of a, a, a real example that I'm working on right now. Company has got two products in market. Their overall strategy is a convert, right? They want to convert the old product to the new product. The new product, the old product is expected to shrink in volume this year. The new product is expected to grow. What do they want to happen? Like I've tried to center them around building a plan that rewards conversion, right? That you can't succeed in this plan without converting the older product into a, into the into the new product. There isn't enough native growth in the new product to do that. And I, I keep pivoting back to convert or die, convert or die. Naturally, the language gets softened because people like to soften language as it goes through a committee. But I look for words that I can anchor on from a behavioral perspective and an outcomes perspective that then I can continue to pivot back to the plan, right? Convert or die. I'm going to pay a lot for overperformance on the new brand right? That's, a, that's an outcome I want to see. Overperformance, the only way you can do it is to convert. Therefore, I want to make sure I reward the people who do that. Overperformance on the old brand, not terribly interested in that. I need to make sure that there's not a lot of rewards in place for overperformance on the old brand. Again, those are the kinds of ways that I, I try to 
I try to draw those lines between strategy and measures that then I can convert it to what outcomes are we looking for from a representative? What behaviors are we looking for? That's a, a reasonably straightforward example, but I find using the most direct language possible is really helpful because the language gets watered down too often and we forget what we're trying to accomplish. Well, Jim, you and I have had this conversation too. The language, when we think about incentive plans and particularly, you know, the people who are designing these plans, they are brilliant people. They're mathematically superior to anything that I could ever imagine being, but they are mathematically inclined, um, looking at, you know, we can put a, a equation in front of them and they get it, grasp it right away. But what they sometimes don't understand is that the salespeople who they're trying to communicate these um, plans to may not understand that mathematical equation to the same degree. And so the language and how you communicate these plans is often subpar in my, in, in my personal humble opinion. Um, and I know that we've had the, these conversations and I love this idea of, you know, being direct because again, as you said, it gets watered down in the committee, in the, bringing it back. Well, we can't say that to our salespeople because that that doesn't, you know, what about this other brand and the brand managers of this other brand are, you know, bringing up all these other factors and different pieces to it. How do you overcome that with your clients? How do you, I mean, I know we try and, um, you know, sometimes we succeed, but other times it's like we get some major pushback. I mean, so. Yeah. You know what, what I find is starting with as direct language as you can I understand I'm going to have to water it down. What my hope is I have, I'm, I, by starting it direct, I'm not watering it down as far as, you know, I'm not making it as mealy mouth as they would like it to be. Yes. Like I'm moving them incrementally. <laughs> yes. Um, is really what, so, you know, I look for small victories, right? Uh, that is our world, isn't I look it? For small, small victories. I do. I look for, yeah. I, right, I look for small victories. And, yeah. you know, if I can get, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, it's never, they're never going to adopt the converter the most direct language. language. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, the, the answer is I don't, for this particular customer, if I can get them close to that, it's, it's a better message. Because truthfully, the answer to how do I win in this plan is going to convert, is going to contain those words. You have to convert. There isn't enough native growth in this product to achieve your objectives where all the money is, right? I can draw those lines for you now, but I couldn't draw them if I hadn't anchored this as the discussion around this very direct statement. Quick question on that. So when you're talking, when, when you're working with your clients, and this is uh, probably getting way too into the weeds, so listeners, I apologize on this, but um, you're talking about that direct language. Are you talking about utilizing that direct language before the plan is even designed. And so in the design of the plan that is anchored in with the people who are doing that work and therefore that watering down not only doesn't get watered down in the language that they use, but it also helps in structuring how that does, as you mentioned, right? We want to pay really high, you know, you, you overperform on the new product, you're going to get a big boost on that. Overperform on the old product, not so much. And so that's kind of anchored in 
already. Is that the way that you typically try to work this? It is, right? I'm consistently frustrated about how often clients will invite me to a design discussion and the first topic will be what measures do we want to use? Um, I think that's I think that's a fundamental pitfall, right? And I'm sure both of you have experienced this. If you do the behaviors right and the outcomes right, the measures, I like to tell my customers, the measures will reveal themselves. The measures are the easy part. It's getting everybody aligned on the outcomes and the strategy. If you can do that, this is not rocket science. There are only, there, there are only so many measures right, that do that. I'm, I'm glad to know that we're all not rocket scientists here. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, it, and it, you know, and maybe, I'm, and I'm probably no. being a little too self-deprecating. No, no, I, I think uh, Tim, you're right, but, though. Um, but you know, the answer is the answer is if you get the behaviors right, then only a certain number of measures make sense, and then it's fine-tuning, right? Then it's the it's the shaping of the plan. It's the, well, okay, how much upside potential do I want? How much, um, you know, where is performance? Where do I want to start paying for performance? All of that stuff is the intricacies of plan design, which are really fascinating, but it all has to be anchored back to that strategy. If it's not, it's just an exercise to divide up an incentive comp budget against some arbitrarily selected measure. Well, I want to use this as a bridge to talk about goals because uh, we talk. You, you mentioned sort of all the buzzwords that that folks who are in this world talk about. You know, performance and objectives and and uh, and the the metrics. What about goals? What what does goal mean to you? Let me let me just let's start there. What do you mean? Like when you talk about goals, what does that mean to you? And then how do you go about crafting them because they're constant they're it's a constant struggle for for clients yeah you know yes it is tim i think a couple of things about goals well first off and this this i i, I often think this is this is particular to the pharma industry but i suspect it's not incentive comp teams generally don't set goals they allocate a forecast right to fundamentally different behaviors, right? If I'm setting goals, I'm looking at your territory, I'm looking at your business, I'm figuring out how much you're growing to grow, I'm adding all of it up, and then I'm coming up with a number. We don't do that. First off, we get a number from high up, say this is the objective for this brand. Your job is to divide it up as fairly as possible, but you can't stop until you're done, until you get down to zero. So I, I always joke and, and Kurt's heard me say this, you know, the words we use matter, right? We don't set, I don't set goals. I allocate a national forecast. I've, con, I've been trying to convince our network to do that, but I think it's an important distinction. Likewise, within plans where you have a, a more subjective component, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word subjective component because I think that is part of the problem is let's get as much as we can measurable there. The, I can have goals i can have an objective if i use if i use you know sort of my mental my mental conversion a goal is simply an objective an outcome that i'm looking for as the result of a certain set of behaviors and that should be measurable identifiable i should be able to say when is that outcome good bad or excellent and if i can do that then i've 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 been i've successfully designed an incentive plan that at the very least is is going to measure 
outcomes the way I want it to. And so when I hear goals, that's what I think about is what are the objectives of the plan and what am I ask, asking people to perform against? Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I have been doing the same thing recently. And I don't know, I probably stole this from you is working with my clients to say, look, you are allocating a forecast. You are allocating a national goal that has been set. And and that language being used, we find a couple different things. One is that in that language of using saying we're allocating the the angst and the anger that um, participants, that the people who are actually getting these goals has is often misfocused in on the IC team. The IC <laughs> team is trying to make my life hell because they're giving me these really aggressive goals. They are, they're, they're not understanding what's going on in my geography, my territory. And they think that they are setting those goals from the bottom up. And that's not the case, as you said, it is a top-down allocation of this national number. And sorry, you get a portion of that. And, you know, if that larger number is way off, we can't do anything about it and it's going to be way off. Um, but that is a different piece. And so that that anger, and again, not saying that this is right or wrong, or this is the reason why you should be doing this, but um, oftentimes I think incentive teams get the kind of target on them of, you know, people shooting at them because of the language that they're using. Um, but two, I think it also is this interesting piece because that then leads to the conversation that says, what is the organization? Why does the organization have this larger goal? What is the reason for that? There, there's obviously a lot of work behind the scenes in order to get to that national goal. Well, most, you'd like to think so. Most of the time. I, I will, yeah, I will caveat that sometimes. Sometimes it's like, yeah, you really do wonder if they're just throwing darts out there or they're responding to some, you know, Wall Street whim. Um, but there is a, a lot of that. And so that leads to a, a deeper, broader conversation, in my opinion, that these people can have about that and what that means for them as, as a as a brand team, as a sales team, all of those kind of factors. I don't know if you are aligned around that same piece or not. You know, I think that, you know, this whole discussion about goals and quotas and expectations, I think that, you know, if in, in, our, in our experience, you know, the highest performing incentive teams are starting to go upstream, mm. right? They're starting to engage brand leaders and you know, the powers that be about, well, where is this number coming from? And, you know, how have you arrived at this number? Should we hold, does it make sense to hold the sales team accountable for all of it? Right. So now that's a slippery slope. Yeah. Right. Because now yeah. you've, you've started engaging in, you know, now you no longer have the cover of, they gave me this national number. It's now, this is a national number that I negotiated on your behalf and I have a little bit more skin in the game, but you know, generally speaking, it's you know the answer is it's not as bad as it could have been, <laughs> right? I've uh, I've negotiated something lower for you, and you know I did the best I could to get the number lower, but that's not an unreasonable that's not an unreasonable discussion to 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 have. But you need to be a pretty buttoned up incentive comp team 
and have have people who can engage in those conversations at the right level. And, you know, not all incentive teams can do that. They are, uh, you know, because of the operational responsibilities and the operational nature of it, it's, it's harder for teams to do, yeah. to do that kind of upstream strategic work. You know, what's interesting about this, at least maybe it's interesting for me, maybe nobody else will find this interesting is this conversation that we're having right now we're talking about it from an incentive team who's designing incentives for the field or for salespeople typically. But this is a conversation that any organization, right? It, it is this idea that, hey, leaders within an organization are setting some sort of goal that they are trying to achieve. And that goal needs to cascade down into what I do as a manager, what my team does as frontline workers, and the language that's used around that and the conversations that happen around that often, I think, are either don't happen or they're, they're the wrong conversations. Um, it, it comes down to, oh, woe is me versus how do we work together, um, both from understanding what that goal is, but also what do we need to do in order to achieve it? And then really looking at that bigger picture, as you said, what do we have control over? What don't we have control over? And how should this be um, parceled out as we as we look? And I think the incentive teams deal with this on a, on a regular basis and others maybe not be thinking about this. So again, I get them off on my soapbox. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's a powerful point, right? Um, you, you know, in my world, people are generally working off of quarterly objectives, right? So it's a 13-week time period. You know, there's there's a whole series of ways to effectively communicate what the objective for that 13 weeks is, right? Well, here's your number. Here's your big number. Well, does that take into account what your current run rate is, right? What's your true growth expectation for this territory or my my that my what does my objective represent? And I always try to get people to break it down. Say, look, this is the objective is you got to get five more scripts a week than you're currently getting. Um, let me put a goal. Let me put the objective into language that makes it difficult to argue against being able to do that. So tell me why you can't do five more scripts a week. Tell me why you can't get three patients, four patients a quarter. Right? T let's talk through why that's impossible. Now, in some cases it is, but there's, you know, the, this breaking it into, breaking these goals into manageable chunks and doing it in such a way that it removes objections and negative thought, right? That's, I think, a, a higher level of communicating the plan and pulling the plan through. I think it's done pretty poorly in most cases because, you know, let's say, I say, you know, you guys kill yourselves, you give birth to this plan, and then you take a big deep breath, and you're like, God, thank goodness it's done. And my argument is the work's just starting, right? It's now you've got to get people to act on this plan, and you've got to pull it through, or else all your effort has been has been wasted. So I think, you know, when you talk about goals, uh, I think we have more to do than, than communicate what the number is, communicate how we calculated it, which I think is a fool's errand anyway, because nobody's ever it's never made someone happy. 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, you can never you can never communicate it till they finally go. Oh, good. Now I agree with my goal. Um, <laughs> no, I mean that's 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 so true. When we we do it, I mean, hopefully it, it allows them to say, yeah, this you're not you're not doing this specifically to screw me over and there's some fairness <laughs> to it. Everybody's, everybody's it's like, getting it's like offering facts to a conspiracy theorist. It's like, so what? Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I need to move you off the, this, this mental space of my goal is unfair. Okay. If the answer is everybody's goal is unfair, let's, let's move on because we still have work to do. And we still have to act against this goal. So let me let me find ways to help you, you know, remove objections. We've Kurt and I have talked about this a lot. You know, how important that is. Just keep keep people in a positive mind space, and not having these negative thoughts, which then impede progress and stop you from acting. I, I need reps. I need the people who are participating in my plan to act, and to act in a way that drives you know that that drives the measures that we're using yeah jim you and i both work a lot with um directors of ic um you know the the ic team itself but oftentimes uh, those people when they're designing the the goals or implementing these they they work with um higher-ups within the organization, VPs of sales or finance or other people within the organization that may have veto power or more influence into actually some elements of this. I will say this, that oftentimes um, when we're working in those situations, those uh, senior leaders fall back on what I consider old beliefs or when I was in the field, this is how we did it, so we should do this now. Um, I, do you, I mean, how, how do you deal with that? If you had a group of VPs in the room and you're saying, hey, um, what are the things that you would like to tell them about incentives that they oftentimes, at least in your experience, seem to maybe misunderstand or get wrong? I would, I would like to have, I'd like to have their full-throated, full commitment support for the plan. Mm. These are the goals we've set. We are doing the best we can from an allocation methodology. I don't want to talk about how we've allocated the goals wrong. I don't want to engage in a discussion about how the data is crap. I think too often we see leadership saying, we're going to get this right. We're going to do what's right for you. Sort of setting up the fact that things are wrong. So I think what you need from leaders is you need that air cover of, no, this is the plan and I believe in it. I believe in our data. I believe in the way we've allocated goals. I believe in what they're asking us to do. Now, having said all that, let's go out and execute. I think there are too many leaders that subscribe to the, I'll take care of you when things inevitably go wrong sort of approach to rolling out and managing incentives. So that's what I look for. I look for I look for sales leaders that are ready to buy into ready to buy into this plan and you know not feed the engine the conspiracy theorists and the uh, the the engines out there that uh that you know sort of impede progress. Yeah. A minute ago we were talking about how many of the projects or the way that a lot of the work is framed is in 13-week quarters. And yes. what are your feelings about contests and spiffs and 
and very short term. Because because when we've been talking about goals and we've been talking about you know IC plans, we've been talking about annual plans for the for the majority of that. What about uh, and you know quarterly based spiffs contests things like that? They are in our network. Certainly, they are very frequently used. You know, eighty percent, eighty-five percent plus use contests. Most of our network has got them. I think we in our last broad survey, we we got results on one hundred and seventy-five or one hundred and eighty contests that our network had run, and ninety plus percent of them were six months or less. So our content, our network is running contests. They are running them on a relatively short-term basis, which aligns with our best practice for contests. My consistent concern for contests are, without getting into, without getting into a lot of the sort of technical aspect of contest design, is I don't see the objectives of contests really well laid out. And when I say the objectives, I don't mean the objective within a contest. I mean, what is the objective of the contest? What outcome do we want to see? Too often, we want to see an increase in sales. Well, I've got a $70 million core incentive plan that's supposed to drive an increase in sales. I need an extra $2 million to drive an increase in sales, so let's not talk about that. So what incremental behavior or incremental outcome do I want? If there's a problem in contests, in my view, it's that that's not well-defined. And when we talk to customers about it, it's funny. I have a, I have a slide that I like to show that says 80% of our customers include ROI, the ROI of a contest in the approval process to get the contest approved, and about 15% measure the ROI to see if it was achieved after the contest is over. <laughs> um, so wow. that's, a, that's a big gap. It's a big gap, right? Yeah, yeah. We can talk about whether ROI is the right measure or not, wow. but um, so what I what I like to encourage people is have a specific outcome that you want. Simplest example: I have customers in my universe who are, who don't use our products. I know the two thousand of them that are highest potential. At the end of this contest, I want five hundred of them to have written. That's a nice, clean contest. I can design really great contest metrics around that, and I make a leap that that is a good outcome for my money. And you're able to and drive. See, you're able to drive specific behavior. So now, what you're doing with this contest is that your salespeople are looking for those. In this case, people who are not writing that are on this two thousand list, and I am going to approach them in a more focused, distinct, different way than I had before to drive the results that we need. So yes, yeah. And and you know, does it have a positive ROI? I don't know. I kind of don't care <laughs> because it's a behavior that I've said. It's I've decided there's a behavior and an outcome that's valuable to me, and it has a long-term value. And let me measure if that happened. So again, I think if you can, uh, I, I like I would like to see contests become more specific and measurable that way. I think that's a that's a that leads to a much better contest where people are actually acting against it yeah so contests are here to stay they are a fundamental way of driving motivation in the field and achieving some kind of incremental outcome so assuming they're here to stay i i, I think that you know my number one best practice is get specific about the objective of the contest and then design it in such a way that you can you pay it if you achieve that objective. Yeah. 
And I know, Jim, we've had this conversation, and I'll just keep this real quick, but um, we have had conversation about how do you reward people in those types of contests? Again, is it is it bringing in cash? Is it bringing in other types of non-cash type pieces? And again, it depends on the contest, but there has been, I, I don't know, um, Mr. Houlihan here has done a lot of work on non-cash kind of work and the the way that that captures people's attentions and different pieces of it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So when we ask our network and when we ask sales reps, what do they want? And we ask sales leaders, what do we want? What do you want? The answer is always cash. Yeah. It's, you know, show us the money. We're all about the Benjamins. No mun, no fun, right? Whatever <laughs> cultural, whatever cultural reference you nice. you want to use, nice. right? Yeah. So we used to ask that, you know, tell me what you want. And I don't know how long ago, Kurt, I think when you, probably when you and I first met, I started asking, tell me about the coolest contest you've ever been part of. 100% of the time I'm told about a prize people won. Yeah. 100% of the time I'm told about a prize people won. I'm told about not only what prize they won, I'm told what product they were promoting, what they did to get it, when it happened. I'm also told those stories by the people who are most vocal about saying we only want cash. <laughs> cash is the only thing that drives our behavior. And then in the next breath, they're telling me about a, uh, the, you know, the TV they want. Um, <laughs> or, or the three TVs that they want. Yeah, the Three TVs they want, which you'd think would be a bad outcome. Yeah. Right, you'd think it would be a bad outcome. Oh, I won four of something, right? I won three sets of golf clubs in this contest. Nope, wretched excess is. is good. Yeah, it never is a bad outcome. I, it, it, you know, the, what's funny is the story I hear about that frequently is the I gave one to my dad and I gave one to my father-in-law, and I was 26 years old and I was handing out golf clubs or flat-screen TVs, and I felt like, I felt like a, you know, the king. Right. That felt so good. And, and you know, there's a 50 year old person telling me about that when it happened when they were in their 20s. Yeah. And again, still getting that, still getting that impact. So I know our network kind of underutilizes non cash. There's a variety of reasons for it. Cash, non cash is a little bit more difficult to manage. Non cash, you know, stakeholders are vehemently opposed to it. A great story about. This is a recent one. Uh, a, a customer of mine ran a warehouse dash contest, virtual, hadn't done a prize-based contest in a while. Complained, reps complained about it when they rolled it out. As they were running it, people were complaining that this contest is stupid. They complained right up until the point that they did the warehouse dash and all they've gotten is positive feedback from it. Ah, that was so cool. Yeah. That was awesome. The people who didn't win talked about how great it was watching this virtual thing. Somebody got motion sick wearing the headset. They even liked it. My kids were handing me my kids were handing me a list of what they wanted based on the list of prizes that you told me would be available in the virtual world. I just I think it was at Maya Angel who had it right. People forget what you told them, um, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I just think non-cash is a is a huge component of that. And I advise my network that if if you're not at least looking at it, you're leaving a a pretty powerful method on the table. 
Uh, let's take best practices. I love this conversation about best practices. And let's think about what would be the best practice on taking two musical artists prior to 1992 to a desert island for a year. What would be the best practice advice, Jim, on which two musical artists would you take with you? Uh, not the physical people, by the way, just their, their catalog their of music. Their body of work. Yeah, oh, their body, their of, body work, of work. Yeah. work. Yeah. You know, good, because it's a very different answer. <laughs> would you would it you is, right? would you ask Springsteen and Bono like for I'd live? I take Dylan. You oh, right? you actually take Bob? Huh? I take Bob Dylan's body of work. Oh, okay, all right. But I wouldn't take Bob because you would you'd never be able to talk to him. <laughs> um, yeah. So I would take Bob Dylan's body of work to a desert island because uh, you know he has just this fascinating kind of evolution. Right, his 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 earliest stuff is so different from his later stuff, and you can enjoy his melodies. So you can just kind of listen to his music, and it's nice. But then if you stop and listen, like actually listen to the words, there's you know he's a powerful he's, stuff. He's a he's a poet, and uh, yeah. um, so I think you get you know you could listen to his music over and over again, and it would always it would always show you something new. Yeah. So Dylan, and then, you know, I'm going to be alone on a desert island, so I'm going to have to bring some headbanging stuff just to keep my spirit up. Okay. So, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, ACDC or Metallica just to, when I have to rage <laughs> as I'm alone on the desert island. See, I would be, uh, I would go with the ACDC again because you have a diversity in in kind of I guess Metallica does too, but I would be you, you're looking at the old old stuff and and kind of you know Bon Scott Bon, bon Scott, Scott era and, and just Johnson. the funness yeah. of some of those lyrics of of how that is with the rocking piece, but it kind of makes you smile. I mean, you know, my big balls is like again every time I hear <laughs> I, that it's just I like I was listening laugh. to what was that? What's there's the ACDC song that has the bagpipes. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had that yeah. on somewhere, and my son, one of my kids, walked by. Is, it, is that bagpipes? <laughs> like, yep, yeah, that's bagpipes, and it's rocking. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's a, it sure it is. Oh. But so yeah, I would need something just to you know something to kind of feed my spirit and soul, and something to just when I needed to howl at the moon. <laughs> Jim, I hope that uh, we find you howling at the moon the next time we chat, but this has been really fun. Uh, and thanks so much for being a guest on Behavior Grooves. Thank you for, uh, thank you for inviting me. You know, I have to say that two of you have been sort of instrumental in, in, uh, in helping me kind of form my beliefs about incentives. And, you know, I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have as strong a point of view around, you know, the, the behavioral aspect had I not, had I not met the, the two of you and listened to the, 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 the things that you've been sharing. And <laughs> you've certainly convinced me that these things, you, you know, these things work. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so no, I'm a, thank you for, thank you for inviting me. I've, uh, I've, I've, uh, uh, sat at the outside listening to behavioral grooves and, and have wished to be part of it. So this is a, this is exciting for me. Well, Jim, thank you. It's been it's been our pleasure, and uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we'll have you back. So there you go. Awesome. All right.
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Jim, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our incented minds. How about that? Incented. Yeah. Incented. Thank you for saying incented and not incentivized. Why? I'm just going to have to. You don't, you don't like incentivized? I don't. It, it's just it, uh, both our English language they're both okay. They're both in the dictionary, but for some reason, I feel like incentivized feels like some kind of a a dirty manipulation ah. of incentive. But to be incented just feels like that's a, sort of a natural part of the thing. So yeah, I can see that. So when you say incentivized, it feels like it's happening to you, like somebody yeah, is forcing yeah. it upon you, and being incented is you are incented you are being incented maybe uh, uh, you could probably okay there's 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 semantics there right but i i get it, it i get what you're saying and it's just comfort it's just what i'm comfortable with not well that and one's... we want to make sure that you are comfortable mr hulahan <laughs> we want to make sure that we just you know pamper you with pillows and you know fans and grapes in your mouth however you want to feel comfortable you know more more pillows please more pillows <laughs> please all right oh i think we need to get into the episode and some insights what did you take away from our conversation around incentives with jim alignment Jim really did a wonderful job of focusing on this idea that it's a big mistake when we are not careful to align our incentives with the behaviors that you actually want. And what? this this is such a wonderful observation from an expert that comes back to remind us that what we think is so intuitive is going to is just going to happen like if i'm just des- i'm going to design an incentive and i want uh i want my son to cut the grass so he's just going to get x dollars to cut the grass and that that's not enough that's not necessarily the 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 right reward for first of all, we'll get into rewards later but it might not be the best reward for the task and it doesn't say anything about when or how any of those kinds of things and so you're omitting a lot of behaviors not just from from a specificity perspective, but it's lacking alignment with what the real objectives are. And I think in business this happens a lot. That that and and it can be devastating. That you actually have incentive plans, and I've seen this that don't align with the strategy. That that the incentive plan was put in place two years ago, five years ago, and has been shifted and modified a little bit. But the strategy for the company, the environment in which they're selling, the entirety of the world that is surrounding all of this might have shifted. And the company might actually have shifted their their selling strategy, their marketing, go-to marketing strategy. But that hasn't cascaded down into the incentive plans or that hasn't necessarily been operationalized into what are the specific behaviors that we need to drive in order to achieve that strategy. I think that's a missing piece. Right. Often. And, and, and these happens, these things happen, these misalignments happen for predictable reasons. Like, let's just start with the fact that we are not very good at understanding our own motivations, our People's- own Oh, yeah. Well, our, our own motivations, right. much less somebody else's. Right. Right. And so this is an area that oftentimes 
we misunderstand what motivates us. And you have done a fair amount of research on this. Again, people always assume X. Like if I pay people to do this, it will it will get them to do it. And we know that that isn't always the case. Sometimes you have to offer a different reward. Sometimes how something, again, we talked about this a lot, that the way that you say something, again, how you frame it can change how people interpret what they're supposed to do with this and what motivates them. And we don't always understand that. And we need to think about it. We just make assumptions about some of that stuff. Yeah. Or, and part of what goes along with this is that we think everybody is like us. I'm going to be motivated. Like my rational brain says, well, if I'm motivated by it, well, <laughs> of course you're going to be motivated by it. And, and I have a great example of this when I was working with a global medical manufacturer and the vice president of sales for the Americas had just finished getting his motorcycle license. And yeah. so he's very excited about driving a motorcycle. He, of course he should be. And so in the middle of the incentive uh, period where all the rules are set up, all the rewards are set up, he says, let's add a big Harley Davidson motorcycle as the top reward for the top performer to get people to strive even more. And what goes through my mind is that in the United States, only 15% of the population has a motorcycle license. So <laughs> 85% of the, it's likely that 85% of his, of the people who are selling in the Americas didn't even have motorcycle licenses, much less want a motorcycle. And then at the very end, when it's announced, it turns out that the, the, the winner was a soccer mom from Dallas whose brother was killed in a motorcycle accident. <laughs> It's like oh, no. it was so it was so terrible that she did not uh, announce this in in a way you know that was obvious and she did not complain but she did not want the reward and I was on the reward side and so we had to make a, a you know had to work through that so this idea that he thought it was a cool idea because he the again the VP was new to this new to this idea of I'm a motorcycle driver so everybody should be is a huge fallacy that we fall uh, I, I we fall into. I, I see this also not just with the reward side of things, but also in the structure of how incentives are structured. And not to call out anybody, but VPs of sales are notorious <laughs> for this, like you just said, right? This VP right. of sales. It, it goes... When I was growing up and I was a salesperson, this is how yep. we did this. And therefore it worked for me. So it should work for everybody. Uh, we had great success back in the eighties and nineties with this plan and the way that it was structured and we should do the same thing. And that type of fallacy, that type of justification without looking at, as you said, 85% of people in the United States don't have even a motorcycle license, much less maybe an interest in getting a Harley. Right. Even if you have a motorcycle, you may not want a Harley Davidson. You might have a dirt bike, you're a big dirt yeah. bike connoisseur, different pieces. So understanding what it is that you're trying to achieve, that strategy that we talked about before, and then understanding the ways that the environment and context and various different things, but also the base level of what people are desiring and how to structure those is super important. And I think we don't fully explore what the right behaviors are to align with that strategy 
that step is often missed. It doesn't get to that next level. And, you know, we just are too focused often in on a the results oftentimes that, you know, yes, VP is, yes. oh, we just we need to get market share up to this or we need to get sales to why without understanding the what that goes into getting those and incenting that going back to this carefully aligning incentives with the behaviors to drive to the results as opposed to just thinking about don't reward the results all the time. I mean, that's important, but you need to really look at what are the behaviors that you're driving. Anyway, we could go on and on and on. But that's an, that's it. I'm glad that you brought that up. But this whole idea is really important about alignment and getting our biases out of the way when we're thinking about our motivation. And we went on and on about this in business, but this is also true, maybe even more so in our own oh, life. Absolutely. absolutely. Right? We are aligning to a goal, uh, something that we're striving for that, A, the world has shifted and we had that goal five years ago and we're still trying to achieve it. And you know what? Maybe we haven't even realized that our strategy needs to change or that our goals have shifted or different right. pieces and we get stuck in our status quo and we need to reassess what we reward ourselves with and what the behaviors that those rewards are driving. There you go. I'll leave it at that. I, I would take that into the world of relationships where uh, I know a guy who's in his, uh, his early 50s who is uh, very attractive and very fit and very bright, never married. His idea, he is still stuck on the idea that his ideal girlfriend should be 25 year, years old and just as, as fit and attractive as him. And it's like, you know, he's not adjusting you know his he's not aligning his objectives of actually having a meaningful relationship in his mid 50s as much as he could be and so there's yeah. opportunities for for better alignment of those objectives and with with his goals that's that's the thing you know when you started off this you know man in his 50s good looking fit i thought you were talking about me oh and then, <laughs> but then you no, said single said, and that's and it, not me and then and then i was no. like oh good Ooh. Thought you were gonna be no, talking if I was, about something about me. Yeah. <laughs> if I was talking about you, I would have said um, an extraordinarily handsome man in his fifties. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we digress. All right. Uh, so moving on uh, again, I can't reinforce how much how important it is to make sure that we carefully align incentives, uh, and then a piece that we didn't necessarily get into, but you know, there are unintended consequences sometimes of, of incentives yep. and of the bad behaviors design. that they're driving in order to get the incentive are opposite of what we actually want them to achieve. And that can lead to huge issues, both in business and in our life and different things like that. And one right. of the things that right. Jim did say that I think can counteract that is that he stated that we need to be direct in what you want done. And that oftentimes we leave a lot of interpretation when we're developing incentives as to what it is. What is that that you want me to do? And those are pieces where we can have a big, a better influence if we are able to break down those goals, right? And kind of make that happen. So. Yeah. Breaking down goals. Uh, it's like if you want to climb Everest, that's a fantastic goal to have. There are going to be a thousand micro goals that go along with changing your dietary and exercise regimen right over the course of a long period of time. And unless you can sort of 
make it make that goal of climbing Everest broken down into weekly or even daily kinds of things that you need to do, it, you'll miss it every, every single time. Well, and Jim talked about this. Again, most incentives are based on a quarterly basis, 13 weeks in a quarter. You need to break down the goal, that that goal that is given to them. And oftentimes companies don't do that. They don't break that down into monthly, weekly, daily goals. Managers need to sit down with their reps and be working with them to say, what do you need to do on a daily basis? And then not only what do you need to do, but how are you going to achieve that? And so that's something that they need to to do. And I don't think they're necessarily good at that. I don't know. Maybe they could it, use it, a journal or something to help help uh, achieve oh, that. Oh, how about brain shift? Oh, that 13 week journal that we talked about yes. at the very beginning. Yeah, that could yes. work. That could be very powerful, right? It's fantastic. It is. <laughs> I, I could wax. I'm serious. It's just I'm so grateful that you guys made that. But oh, well, okay. appreciate that. What else, Mr. Hula? Can, can we talk a little bit about the non-cash reward stuff? Because oh, I didn't think you would even want to go there because that's not something that you care about at all. Of course, of course we can. And I I was being facetious for anybody. Tim is a connoisseur of understanding the difference between <laughs> cash and non-cash and has done decades of work in this area. So I'm I'm imagining uh, myself on the cover of non-cash rewards aficionado. <laughs> You would be you would be on their wall of fame. That's all I have to say. It's like, yep, this is he won the award too much. We're just he's he's out of running anymore because he's on the wall of fame. There, there he is. Um, yeah. Well, we we can touch on a couple a couple of things that make non cash and non monetary rewards so powerful, it, both in our personal lives, our our in, in all sorts of things, right? Like, I mean, just think about that experience of when you go to someone's house who's invited you for dinner and you bring a bottle of wine, you take the price tag off the bottle of wine. You don't give them $20 and say, here, go and get yourself the, the bottle that you want. You actually take a bottle and you don't want them to know that you only spent $8 on that bottle of wine. So you take, <laughs> at least when I'm coming to your house, <laughs> I take the price tag off and then it, then it's just a gift right it's 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 a thank you and rewards can be like that and be very effective in that role and even when we think about these types of things that's a gift a kind of a thank you those yeah. are powerful those are great in driving long term uh, appreciation of the company making sure that you redo that behavior again but when we think about incentives where it's a prospective component where you go, oh, that's great for a thank you. You offer that non-cash because then it doesn't get into, you know, how much you spent on me and various different things. But even in a prospective where you're saying, I'm going to offer you $20 if you do this or I'm going to offer you this bottle of wine, the, the research shows that in, again, within certain parameters – that bottle of wine is going to drive a lot more engagement and motivation and performance on the back end than that $20 would, right? This exactly. is this idea that we are motivated on these non-cash rewards because they act in a different way within our brain. That, That's right. That what happens. Right. And I know we talked with Scott Jeffries back in episode episode three who was one of the leading kind of researchers on this and really, and then we grooved on it 
back in episode 22. But you want to talk about that because this is stuff that you you helped in. I loved I, I loved Scott's work and I, it jives a lot with uh, Yana Gallus. Let's just call Yana Gallus out uh, in episode 106. We talked about uh, of the variety of incentives and rules that the to to earn rewards. But yeah, so Scott's research, Scott Jeffrey has some great research that I'd want to call attention to. Uh, he did with Victoria Schaefer on justifiability and sociability as being two key components of what make non-monetary rewards important and justifiability what does what does that mean it means that we get we get a reward that we wouldn't normally spend our own money on that we wouldn't indulge ourselves because if we got the cash we'd pay bills we wouldn't we feel, actually we feel go up. bad we we can't we can't justify spending we can't justify right that amount of money on a new set of of ping golf clubs or uh yeah. whatever or the vacation that, or, or the vacation or, or a big screen tv or whatever yeah, right because oh i need to spend i need to put the money in savings i need to do this and then we feel there's a there's an kind of a, a resistance to that at our core when that happens, when we get the money. That justifiability goes out the door when, oh, I got an opportunity to win that trip. I have an opportunity. That's, that's right. oh, I, I don't get the cash. I don't get to choose. I get to choose maybe what the reward is, but I don't get to choose that, oh, I got to put 30% of this away for retirement and pay the gas bill and different things because I can't. I get to I choose can't. between the ping golf clubs or the grill or the the big screen TV. Damn it. Damn. I got to pick one of them and I'm justified in being able to pick those. That's fantastic. And the sociability side, the other one is that we talk about it, that that there is I think there's a movement in, in the U.S. and in Europe of being more transparent about salary. However, there's still a fair amount of resistance to that. Not everybody feels comfortable talking about how much money you make. And I've never seen a person's desk with a picture of their last paycheck on it. <laughs> there's pictures of family and friends. Oh, Tim, and, you want to see here? You want to take a look oh, at my yeah, desk? Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> no, you do not. We the, like the, the kind of things that we like to talk about. Uh, with our friends, with our family, with work associates, are things that we do. Are 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 the new TV and the new grill and how we 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 just got the grill and then we're we had a barbecue and it was really fantastic. We don't talk about how much it cost. No. We don't talk about I got the bonus and with that ten thousand dollars I, I I bought a you know I, I bought. I paid off part of my visa bill, and then I also used it to buy, a, you know, a grill. And oh, and no, I got we, those groceries because we were running low oh, on milk and different. I, I filled pieces up the car and, with gas, and oh man, that gas is just the best because I used my bonus money on that. So this is oh. interesting. So I, again, working with our old company BI, that you know we both used to work BI worldwide. I, there was a period where I used to get points, and I could redeem this for this. This was 18 years ago. And wow. Aaron and I, uh, my wife, we were just out. We're going, going, you know what? I got a TV through those points 18 years ago. You can think how, you so know, it's, you it's were, an older you were TV. You 20 years old then. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little older than that. But we have an 18-year-old TV, and we were going out to buy a new TV. And what we talked about is, you know, we got that reward through this, this point program. That's 18 yeah. years ago. 
I would yeah. have never remembered, yeah. like, if I got a paycheck and I bought the TV that way, we wouldn't, wouldn't be talking about that. So there's this aspect of reconsumption of yes. everything about what you did to earn that. So when you see that grill, when you see the picture of you and your spouse at uh, Hawaii for winning the President's Club trip. You yep. reconsume that experience all those times. And with that comes an aspect of appreciation for the organization that you don't get any other way. And that is powerful as well. It is incredibly powerful, especially in a world where we are novelty seeking and in social circles where people are well-traveled. I've had this this experience. People are well traveled, uh, wealthy, you know, individuals. And I'm sitting having a conversation, and someone will say, "Well, you know, do you love? You know, I love to go to Rome." And then someone antes up that, you know, and says, "Oh yeah, I love the, um, you know, the the St. Peter's, and I love the art gallery." And I he's like, and then somebody else went up that and said, "Well, you know, I was on President's Club, and I got a private tour of the gallery at the Vatican." And it's like. Oh, there's that even more exceptional, more novel, more rare. And that was a reward. And they frame it as, yeah, when I won President's Club, my company allowed me to do that. I didn't have to spend my own money on that. It makes it even cooler to and talk so about. So we've talked about justifiability, the sociability about that piece, right? This reconsumption aspect. The other piece that incentives, uh, like using this non-cash type things in an incentive, this prospective kind of getting people is exactly what you're just talking about here. So there's an emotional level to that that does not happen in right. a other piece. So in other words, you give me, uh, say, Kurt, you do X and I'm going to give you $100. I, I figure in my head, all right, that's going to take me two hours. All right, that's $50 right. an hour. I can do that. That's okay. I'll do that for $50 oh. an hour. But no, all right, this is going to take me 10 hours. That's $10 an hour. Um, maybe not so much, right? This is that piece. It's like it's why we take the the price tag off of that bottle of wine because yeah, I don't yeah. want you to think I'm you're only worth eight dollars, Tim. You're you're worth much more, and that's what happens in these non cash pieces. Is we don't necessarily assign a dollar value to it. It's an emotional value that gets right. assigned to it, and that emotional value it, a has a stronger motivational pull. We know that it's more of an intrinsic element than an extrinsic element. And it can um, really be uh, that piece that gets pushes us over that level. Scott Jeffrey said when he was doing some research for a paper about, it, it, I think the paper was called $5,000 or a trip to Hawaii, that he's doing some interviews. And when he's, he's framing the $5,000 that can be used for a trip to Hawaii, and he said in the conversations, the salespeople that he's talking to, they say, well, well, what airline are we going to fly? What, what, what hotel are we going to stay at? Um, can I, I, cause I can upgrade if, if it's at a Marriott, I, I could upgrade. And so I, I, can I use my points? And it became a deal. Whereas when they, when he was talking to those sales reps who were going to be, you know, potentially earning the free trip to Hawaii, they're just like, great. When do we go? Yeah. Like there's no deal making, there's no calculation that, that happens. And that's a marvelous thing when it comes to our motivation is it's a straight line. When you connect directly to our emotions, it's a straight line to motivation. I love that. I mean, that's such a great piece, right? Is even if you put it, it's a trip worth $5,000 and you add that cash element to it, all of a sudden 
our brains, again, we get triggered and yeah. it, the framing piece of that comes in and like, oh, I could do a much better trip for $5,000 to Hawaii on my own. <laughs> right. You know, I could do right. if we were staying right. at, we're staying here, we could have stayed here and why, oh man, I could have oh, got yeah. the, we're, we're only getting one, uh, you know, uh, little trip out on the on a boat or a golf course i could have gotten two for that and why price. that golf course that's a crappy golf course that's not the one that i really want and that's not the conversations that you want people to be no. having and they don't have that for whatever reason it's the the quirk you know our brains fool us all the time and it's one of those quirks of our brains that goes and says oh free trip cool what do you got? It's a free trip. I don't have mm -hmm. to do any of the calculate. I don't have to sit there and go, oh, I would have picked, you know, golf course B over golf course A because it's a little better in the <laughs> right. value or it's a free trip. It's a free trip. I got to go. I got to go golfing in Hawaii and go on a sailing trip with my spouse. And damn, that was just enjoyable. And we got to see sunsets and I have these great memories and pictures from it. And I know I will have that going um, even prospectively. So, and I could just go for hours on that. I just love that. <laughs> that was a great conversation with James. Yeah. And so let's not go hours on this because as you and I could go hours on this, I don't know if our <laughs> listeners want to listen that they, they don't have the incentive. Uh, it, it, it doesn't uh, kind of land with them the same way it lands with us. So, yeah. Thank you for listening, listeners, and we hope that you got some insight on this, not only how to motivate and use incentives if you're in that field or salesperson, but just in how to motivate people and yourself, particularly in general. Uh, we hope that you're motivated to go out and leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or a, a colleague. It's <laughs> just every little bit helps. And, and I think if you know a salesperson or a sales leader, then maybe this would be an episode that they would enjoy. So they would be uh, really uh, appreciative of this non-cash gift that you give to them uh, by giving them the link to this uh, episode. So those, those sales leaders, those salespeople, go for it. Yeah. You know who would enjoy it even more than sales leaders? Who? Grandma. <laughs> She, she know grandmas know the most about everything. And so they know about incentives. And I think grandmas would appreciate this more than anyone in the world. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. With that strange digression, I think we need to end. Um, but I just want to ensure that you motivate yourself to go out and find your groove this week. 